Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we stop, stop and pause right now, Father, and we ask that you would tune our hearts to the teaching of your word. Father, that we would remove distractions, that we would let go of concerns in our hearts and of responsibilities that we may be thinking of, Father, and let us now enjoy your word. Let us uh, crave its teaching. Let us apply the beautiful truths that we can learn here today. We pray, Father, that your spirit would guide this study and that you would truly impress your truth upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about, uh, about six months ago, I received an invitation in the mail. And I opened up this invitation. It had, uh, it had the presidential seal on it. I thought, wow, I must be a pretty important person. So I opened up this invitation and I pull it out. And sure enough, it is an invitation to go and enjoy a dinner with President George W. Bush in Washington, D.C. My own personal invitation it had my name on it. It told me when and where. And I turned to my wife. I said, honey, we have been invited to dinner at the White House with President Bush. And uh, I, I had just kind of looked at it haphazardly and I handed it off to her and Casey starts looking at the invitation and she notices at the bottom, please bring a $10,000 donation. <laughs> so what do you think I did with that invitation? Yeah, I threw it away, that's right. I threw it away, it went, it, it went in the garbage, my hopes and aspirations of dining with the president were all but lost. Friends, now that is an invitation in which you and I most likely would really not accept. We probably wouldn't have the means to accept that kind of an invitation. And so we would end up throwing that invitation in the garbage. But today, today I want to look at an invitation that is worth keeping. Today, the title of my message is Don't, Don't Throw Away Your Invitation. Don't throw away your invitation. We're going to be looking at a parable today from the Gospel of Luke. I encourage you now to turn to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, and I will set, I want to set the stage for this parable. We looked a little bit at this portion of scripture last week as we were discussing, uh, defending the destitute, defending the poor and the needy. You see, Jesus in Luke 14 has been invited into the home of a prominent Pharisee. And this is a most unusual occurrence. For the Jews of that day only dined with members of their own social class. Jesus, being the son of a carpenter, was not of the upper class in Israel. Yet he had been invited due to his growing popularity among the people of Israel. And he's given the opportunity to speak to these Pharisees. He's sitting at the banquet and they give him opportunity to begin teaching. And he takes that opportunity. We looked last week at Jesus' teaching in verses 12 to 14. To put it succinctly, Jesus was saying, open up your homes to the poor and to the needy, and if you do, you will be blessed. You will be rewarded for that. 
What we didn't look at last week was the response of one of the Pharisees to Jesus' teaching in verses 12 to 14. The response to Jesus' teaching that we see is found in Luke chapter 14. Notice verse 14, Jesus' words here. He says, And you will be blessed because they, meaning the poor and the needy, they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, the Pharisees would have been a little bit baffled by the idea of inviting the poor or the needy to dinner. But one thing they would not be confused about is the concept of reward, of receiving commendation from God. And so when Jesus indicates this idea of repayment in the life to come, one Pharisee said this in verse 15, notice. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Our text today deals with Jesus' response to that statement in yellow. Our text, verses 16 to 24 that we're going to read, and the parable within that text, is the response to those words in yellow. The idea that, well, yes, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You see, hidden underneath that kind of a statement from this Pharisee was the assumption that both he and his fellow religious associates would themselves be participants in the kingdom of God. Hidden underneath that statement was the assumption that he would one day be at that feast and that he would one day be enjoying that meal in the kingdom of God. But you see, Jesus' perception is quite different. It's quite different than the average first century Israelite. While everyone else was convinced that the Pharisees would indeed be in the kingdom of God one day, Jesus responds with a parable that suggests quite otherwise. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. Jesus' response to these words in yellow. He says this in Luke 16. Then he, Jesus, said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for now all things are ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper."
Okay. Let's learn and understand the principles of this story. Let's take it step by step and pull out, draw out, what in the world is Jesus trying to communicate with this response? Notice again, verses 16 to 17, Jesus says this story. He said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, don't miss the irony here. Jesus is at a banquet, dining with the religious elites, the Pharisees. He's dining with them. And he relates a story that, ironically enough, is about a banquet, is about dining among others. You see, immediately, the Pharisees are beginning to recognize that Jesus is attempting to relate the very this earthly banquet that He was experiencing with them to the banquet that was to come in the Kingdom of God. And so they were starting to make the connection. While Jesus is dining with them, now He's telling a story about another supper, a great supper. We are right to assume that He's speaking of the Kingdom of God here in verse 16. And there is a guest list assembled for this banquet. Invitations are sent out well in advance. And here again we see an invitation is being offered. In this case, an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. An invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. And finally, I don't want you to overlook the comment at the end of verse 17. This is important because within it, I believe, hinges the entire crux of the parable. At the very end of verse 17, the servant goes out into the town and tells those who were invited that come for the supper's ready now. He says, come for all things are now ready. Jesus doesn't use this statement whimsically. He uses it very strategically in the story. You see, it was the perception of the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was an altogether future event. It was the perception of the Pharisees that the kingdom was entirely future. And there was no concept of a present aspect of the kingdom. Yet Jesus wants to bring something out. Jesus wants to enlarge their perspective with this story. Yes, the kingdom of God is a future event. Jesus doesn't deny that. There will be a coming political and very physical kingdom of God in which Jesus reigns and rules on the earth and we are awaiting that kingdom to come. But Jesus wants to enlarge their perspective. And Jesus wants to focus in here, in our story today, on the very real and present, this earthly opportunity to experience the kingdom of God. What do you mean? What do you mean, Neil? What do you mean a this earthly experience of the kingdom of God? Take a look at Jesus' words in Luke 17, 20-21. Jesus says this in response to the question, when will the kingdom come? Notice verse 20. Now when He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, 
For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Very confusing words, perhaps. Jesus, in this statement, is not denying that the kingdom, again, is going to be a future event. He's not denying that the kingdom is not going to occur one day when the Messiah is reigning over all the earth. But what he's trying to do in Luke 17, just like he's doing in Luke 14, is he's widening our perspective. He's helping us to understand that, yes, the kingdom is future, but also, also, the kingdom is right now. We have an opportunity now, as believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God, to experience in part, in part, the kingdom of God in our own human life. What does that look like? It's the reign of God in a human life. It's a Spirit-led life. It's laying hold of eternal life, is what Paul called it. We can experience the kingdom now in part, Jesus is trying to say. Don't conceive of it exclusively as future. You and I, today, can have an opportunity to experience the kingdom. To experience the reign of God in our life. Back to the story. Upon giving the news that the feast was prepared, all those invited to the banquet responded in a very unexpected manner. Notice verse 18. 18 to 20. Take a look at Luke 14, 18 to 20. When they've been invited, this is what they say. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Have you ever gone to great lengths to host a party? Have you ever gone to great lengths and you're cleaning and you're cooking and you're, you're making all the preparations in your home and, I mean, you know, I, I've mentioned in, in our house, when, when we're hosting an event, my wife can attest, I mean, it's madness in our house, right? Right, honey? Okay, she's nodding. It's madness. I mean, we got to clean everything, we got to cook everything, make sure everything is just so for the party. We go to great lengths to make sure that our guests feel welcome when they come into our home. Now, have you ever gone to such great lengths to clean and to cook and to prepare for a feast and then have just a few show up? Have you ever gone to such great lengths to prepare your home for guests and you've invited dozens and dozens of family and friends and only two or three show up? How about no one showing up? How would you feel then? In our story today, all those who were invited find an excuse. All those who were invited to the Great Supper have found an excuse. No one showed up. 
They had previously been invited to the feast, and they had accepted the invitation, but when the time came to participate, they found an excuse. Going back to the text, notice verse 18. One cites, uh, he says, hey, I've, I've bought some property. I bought a piece of ground. I bought a piece of land, and I've got to go attend to it. He felt an obligation to visit his property. Another cited a recent purchase, and he says, hey, I've purchased these oxen for my field, and, well, I, uh, I want to test them out today. And another said, uh, look, I just got married. I, uh, I, I can't come today. Now, he had accepted the invitation, knowing full well the date of his wedding. But now that the time came for the event, he was using it as an excuse one theologian said, made this remark about these verses. He says this, John Nolan says, These people have the kind of preoccupations with the material affairs of life that can be a most serious trap. Or the kind of attachment to family relationships that cripples the possibility of any costly committed stance. I ask you today, are you making excuses? Are we making excuses? Jesus has offered to you and to me a very real and present experience of the kingdom of God right now. Most of us in this room have believed in Jesus. The Spirit of God resides in us. But are we like the Pharisees? Are we simply sitting back and looking to that future heavenly experience and avoiding the opportunity to experience the kingdom of God now in our lives? I ask you the question, are you participating in the kingdom? Are you participating in the kingdom? Or are you distracted by making money? Are you participating in the kingdom of God or are you preoccupied with your television set? Are you participating in the kingdom of God? Or is your mind on how many weeks of vacation you have that year? Are you participating in the kingdom of God? Or are you engrossed in your own busy schedule? Don't have time. I urge us today to participate in the kingdom now. Do not squander this invitation. Do not throw it aside. As Christians living in this part of the world, in Orange County, we must especially be reminded that life is not about our money, not about our job, not about our car, not about the home that we live in. It is not about our vacations. As Christians, our life is about participating in the kingdom of God right now. It is about worshiping God in all we say and do by the Spirit of God who lives and resides within us. And I want to simply remind us that our lives will continue to feel empty until we put Christ on the throne. We will continue to feel a sense of want until... Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of our hearts until we are participating in the kingdom now. Are you feeling that sense of emptiness? Perhaps 
He's not on the throne of your heart. To our story again, verse 21. So the servant comes and reports these things to the master. He says, nobody's coming. They've all squandered the invitation. How do you think the master would have responded? How might you have responded if no one came to your party? Offended? Yeah. Frustrated? Yeah. Angry? Probably. Anger sets in for the host. Notice verse 21 to 22. The middle of 21, it says this. Then the master of the house being angry said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. The master is naturally very upset that no one has shown up. He's naturally upset with those who have better things to do. And so what does he do? He sends out another invitation. He rewrites the guest list. And this time, he invites the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Now, if you remember those four people groups, we looked at those four people groups last week. And it's the same list mentioned in verse 13 of chapter 14. Jesus here again is reminding us that His kingdom is especially designed for the unlikely, for the poor, for the destitute. His kingdom is especially designed for these kinds of folks, the kinds of folks who don't give excuses, the kinds of folks who are concerned with serving the King. We do well to love and serve the poor because helping and defending the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the sick was one of the most fundamental objectives of Jesus Christ. And here again, he's highlighting this this people group. The servant goes out, invites the new guests, urges the poor and the afflicted to come in, and when he returns to the master, he says, there's still room. Verse 23, Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now, so far in the story, the invitation went out to the religious aristocracy, to those that assumed that they themselves would be in the kingdom of God, who felt that they were guaranteed that spot, and yet they squandered the invitation. And so the invitation went out a second time, but this time it went out to the unlikely, to the outcast, to the poor. Jesus here is trying to convey in story form the spreading of the gospel in the first century. It was offered to all, but it was rejected by the religious aristocracy and embraced by the unlikely of Israel. It was rejected by the most pious people and embraced by the tax collectors and the sinners. So what we're seeing here in this story is the story of the gospel spreading throughout the first century. And what do we notice in verse 23? He says, well, there's still room. There's still room in the house. And so what does he do? He says, go out into the highways and the hedges. That is to say, go on the outskirts of the city. Go outside the boundaries. We might infer, and, and rightly so, that Jesus here is speaking of other groups that would be invited to the kingdom. Namely, the nations, the Gentiles. That this would not just be a Jewish 
specific kingdom. The Gentiles, all nations, would be invited to this banquet. The words compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. I want to pause just briefly on this. Uh, It's important historically, and a little history lesson here uh, for all of us. The word compel there is the Greek word uh, anagazo. It's a verb, and it means uh, it can have a physical aspect to it. It can mean to force or to make or to compel, or it can have an emotional aspect to it, meaning to urge or to insist. Uh, The context of this parable makes it almost indisputable that this is an emotional plea. He's urging them, come to my banquet. Come to my banquet. He's not compelling them to come. However, however, it is important to note that this verse historically was interpreted uh, very poorly. St. Augustine interpreted the phrase compel them to enter as an indication that Jesus advocated conversion by force if necessary. In the 5th century A.D., the great saint, St. Augustine, interpreted this verse as a means of forcing physical conversion. I can show you where he writes on this if you're interested. As this false doctrine spread throughout the church, it continued on into the Middle Ages. And for those of you that may know history, it became one of the rallying cries of the people group you and I know today as the Crusaders. Sadly, this lone phrase compelled them to enter interpreted, use physical force to convert. This lone phrase, once poorly interpreted, contributed to the death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and has been one of the enduring stains on the Christian faith for 1,000 years. I personally have had many interactions with unbelievers who cite the Crusades as one of the reasons why they do not want to become a Christian. My father-in-law and I know of a, of a, of a, a dear friend who, who cites the Crusades and says, how could I become a Christian? Look at that. Look at what happened. Why do I bring this up? This, this is definitely off topic, but why do I bring this up? To bring one point home very, very vividly. Interpreting Scripture is so important. Correct interpretation is so important. St. Augustine of the 5th century misinterpreted. He said, Luke 14.23 says, we can use physical force to convert. And the Crusaders went out and used physical force to convert. And those that would not convert, they would often kill. Friends, misinterpreting God's Word is not a small matter. It can have devastating consequences. Okay, back to our text. We're coming to the very end now. We looked at verse 23. In verse 23, then the Master said, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. That is, go to another group, to the Gentiles. Widen the, the parameters of my invitation and bring them in. Urge them to come in. Plead with them to come in. This supper is for them. And verse 24 The last verse says this, For I say to you that none of those men 
who were invited shall taste my supper. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now, look closely at this verse. Notice the phrase, for I say to you. Up until this point, Jesus has been relating a story. He's been relating it in the third person, saying the master did this, and the servant said this, and the master did that, and the people said this. And now we come to the phrase, for I say to you. I ask you the question, who is making this statement? Who is making this statement? Is it the master making this statement in the story? Is the master saying these words in the story? Or is it Jesus making this statement outside of the story, at the conclusion of the story? And a second question is, who, are, who is or who are the recipients of this statement? Is the recipient the servant that the master addresses in verse 23? It says the master said to the servant. Or could the recipients be the audience that Jesus is speaking with, the Pharisees? Could it be those whom Jesus is addressing at this banquet table? This is actually a very difficult question. Uh, I, <laughs> I, went, um, I went myself through a number of commentaries and I would see almost a 50-50 split on the issue. It was really rather remarkable. Uh, but I have three reasons in which I believe uh, the matter is clear. I want to offer three reasons why I believe the parable ends in verse 23. The parable's over by verse 23. And Jesus is now making a statement about that parable to the Pharisees in verse 24. He's speaking directly to them in verse 24. Notice these reasons. The first reason is this. If we assume the Master is speaking in verse 24, it would make no sense for Him to threaten to exclude those who are already trying to excuse themselves from the banquet. Does that make sense? If the Master is speaking, which I don't believe is the case, if He is speaking though, if we assume that He is, then He is making a threat. He's saying, you won't taste My supper to people who have already said, I don't want to come. That doesn't seem to jive. Here's the second reason why I believe that the parable is already over by verse 23 and Jesus is now speaking in verse 24. Second reason, the word you of verse 24, for I say to you, is plural. It's plural. Which suggests the recipient cannot simply be the servant of verse 23. The word is plural. Jesus is addressing a wider audience. Now some would say that the Master is addressing the wider audience at His gathering. But I find that difficult to believe. I believe that it's much more likely that Jesus is addressing His present audience, the Pharisees at this banquet table. And third and finally, a third reason why the parable is already over by verse 23 and Jesus is now talking. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus regularly makes a final remark after He has completed a parable. That, finally, that final remark virtually always begins with the words, For I say to you. You can look at the passages I mentioned there. Jesus is very uniform in His teaching method. He uses patterns. And this is a pattern that is very common in Jesus' teaching. 
and in the Gospel of Luke, and in Matthew, and in Mark. Jesus ends the parable and makes a summary statement. For I say to you, who is the speaker? Verse 24, it is Jesus speaking now. The parable's already over. And who are receiving these words? The Pharisees are. His immediate company around this banquet table that He is speaking to. Why do we go into so much of that detail, Neil? Why, why would we focus in on that? Well, what does this final statement in verse 24 mean? What is Jesus telling the Pharisees in verse 24? I submit this. Jesus, while dining at a banquet among prominent Pharisees, is informing His fellow diners that their entrance and participation in the kingdom of God is not guaranteed. Unbeknownst to them, they have excused themselves from the kingdom of, from the kingdom feast and thrown away their invitation. It's quite a telling story. I imagine the Pharisees who heard this were quite taken aback by the final statement of Jesus. In essence, he was saying, you're not going to this feast. You are not guaranteed to enter this feast. How are we guaranteed to participate with God in the kingdom of God? Friends, the Scriptures are clear. We are guaranteed eternal life by simple faith in Jesus Christ. Something that the vast majority, if not all the Pharisees, did not do. By expressing belief in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life with God And we can have a very real and present experience of God's reign in our hearts right now. The Pharisees had been invited to that feast, but they had squandered it. They had thrown away their invitation. And now Jesus was telling them, that feast is not yours to partake of. What can we learn from this story? I have three uh, applications that I would like to share with you. And the first is, is really very practical, and it, it has to do with the tangent that we went on with respect to the Crusaders. The first is this. Please memorize the meaning of Luke 14.23. The words compel them to come in. It may help you explain the terrible mistake made by the Crusaders of the Middle Ages. Uh, I, I cannot express to you how important it is to know this verse. Because those who are not believers, who have concerns about the crusades of the Christian faith, they're going to point to something like this. And if you have an explanation, that is, that is just such a wonderful opportunity for you to tell them, hey, you know what? We made a mistake. We made an awful mistake. The people who were leading the Christian faith made a terrible, terrible mistake. And we interpreted God's word incorrectly. And it caused serious consequences. Two, now we're getting a little more personal in our personal lives. Two, there is a present aspect, present aspect of the kingdom of God that is available to you and I today. Participate in the kingdom now and enjoy the blessings of a spirit-led life. Friends, no more excuses. No more excuses. Three, are you making excuses? Are you finding yourself preoccupied with the things of this world rather than experiencing God's reign in your life? I urge you to stop squandering the invitation. Most of us in this room have already accepted this invitation, but we're squandering it. 
We're suppressing it. We're not attending the event in full. We're sitting back and looking forward to the future and saying, well, there's my inheritance, but you know, for now I'm going to focus on money, properties, vacation time. That's what I'm going to focus on now. No, friends, that is squandering. Squandering the invitation. I urge you today, don't throw away the invitation. Don't throw away the invitation to participate in God's kingdom right now. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty and truthfulness of your word. We thank you for for Jesus Christ, your son. Father, his storytelling is is bar none, Father. It, it, It resonates with our souls when we hear these stories that speak your truth. Father, I ask that your spirit, who is indwelling those of us who have believed in your son, Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, for a special working of your Spirit amidst this congregation. That we as a, as a body, as the people of God, as, as your family, that we would rise up and lay hold of eternal life. Participate in the kingdom even now. Father, we thank you for this privilege, for this invitation. We ask that you would help us not to squander it. In Christ's name, amen.